Hi, this is Richard Conrad, author of Culture Hacks, uh, speaking on Japan. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Hello there, my name is Chris Smith and you're listening to the Culture Matters Podcast. We're on episode hun- number 131 and we have Richard Conrad back on the show who was here with us on number 128 as well. Richard Conrad grew up in Washington, D.C., studied engineering and economics at Vanderbilt University, earned a master's degree in economics as a local student at the Fudan University in Shanghai, China, and later earned an MBA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Richard worked for the last 17 years for a large U.S. money management firm researching, analyzing, and investing in Chinese and Japanese equities. Richard is fluent in Chinese and Japanese and continues to live in Asia with his family. Like I said, we had Richard on the show already in episode number 128. Uh, he's back again, but now we are exclusively talking about how to do business in Japan. And uh, Richard is able to describe Japanese culture quite extensively. So it's really worth going to the interview and listening to this, uh, typically also because of the examples that he gives. There's one word that I want to introduce to you because that somewhere towards the end of the interview um, comes across, comes uh, passing by, which is the word karosh. And karoshi means, uh, in my own terms, death by overwork. So that at least you have that context as well. Let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Hey, Richard, how are you? Good morning or good afternoon, rather, because uh, you're on the other side of the of the planet compared to where I am. How are things? Oh, I'm good. It's uh, late at night here, actually. Ah, it's late at night. What 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 time is late at night? Uh, well, 9.20, so not right. that late. Not that late, no. Um, Richard, you've been uh, uh, on the show before, actually not so long ago. I looked it up, you were on uh, number 128, and now we're on 131. And the reason that you're back is because after uh, uh, hitting stop, we chatted on the last pod- podcast, we, we chatted and talked a little bit further and more, and you actually thought it was a good idea to particularly talk about Japan, Japanese culture. Typically, I guess, in comparison to uh, maybe Western culture. So that's the topic for today. But for the people that have not listened to episode 128, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself, where you come from, what do you do? You don't sound like you're from Singapore. I know that you're there. So a little bit uh, of your uh, cultural frame of reference and about who's Richard Conrad. Sure. So I'm an American born and raised, educated in the U.S., Uh, But after college, when I was 22, I moved to Japan, and I've been in Asia uh, for about the last 27 years now, Um, living in Japan, China, and now Singapore. Um, I must say I was a cultural neophyte, um, perhaps a bit closed-minded of an American when I first moved overseas, but uh, 
I was determined to learn Japanese and learn Chinese. And what surprised me along the way is that um, on top of learning the language, how important it is to learn culture. And so I've been focusing on, uh, on culture a lot. Okay. So we're talking about Japan here. Um, but at least in this episode, we talk about Japan. In, in number 128, we talk more in general about uh, China and Japan in comparison to, to the US indeed. Um, just a bit of, um, of introductory, introductory questions. How close are Japanese and Chinese language? And is one of them easier to learn than the other? Uh, yeah. So they're very different. Mm-hmm. Um, the character systems are shared. Japan adapted adopted the Chinese character system of, you know, 1500 years ago, Mm -hmm. but the languages are completely different. Um, uh, In this vein, I would say culturally, the Chinese and Japanese are as different from each other as um, they are, or at least as the Chinese are from the U.S., say. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of um, ease of learning, Chinese is much easier to learn than Japanese. There are a couple (laughs) reasons for that. Mm -hmm. Um, one is the grammar is much simpler. You don't conjugate verbs and the structure is the same as, as English. It's, it's subject, object, uh, subject, verb, object. Mm-hmm. Japanese is, uh, crazy amounts of conjugation, crazy amounts of politeness levels. So mm-hmm. the, the language you use, the words, the grammar, it changes depending on the level of person you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. And, and then the final point is, China is a very inclusive country. They're very happy to speak Chinese with foreigners. Mm-hmm. Um, the Japanese are very exclusive. They're not comfortable speaking Japanese with foreigners. They don't like to do it. So whereas in China, you have millions and millions of potential language partners every day. Chinese are so friendly, so easy to talk to. The Japanese, it's much more difficult to get um, that kind of practice. Okay. Uh, and in terms of writing, is that does that make any difference? Uh, they're about equally difficult there. Mm-hmm. Chinese pronunciation, of course, is a lot more difficult than Japanese because of the tones. And also they have some sounds that we rarely use in English. So, mm-hmm. so the, the first month of learning Chinese is more difficult, whereas Japanese, it's very monotone. There aren't any sounds. We don't, maybe one set of sounds we don't use normally. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of writing it, Chinese, it's all characters. So you need two to 3,000 characters to write it and read it comfortably. Mm-hmm. Japanese has a vocabulary, They, uh, sorry, an alphabet. They've mm-hmm. got a Japanese alphabet, and then they've got an alphabet for foreign words. And so you get the characters combined with the alphabet. And so you don't need as many characters as you do in Chinese, but the challenge is one character can be read what they'll call the Chinese reading of the character or the Japanese reading of the character mm-hmm. because the characters were adopted onto the Japanese language. And so that can get very complex. Some characters can have up to 15 or even more um, different readings, whereas Chinese, it's always just one pronunciation. Okay. What's a sound in, in Japanese language that they use that we don't? Um, well, as you can guess, you know, the Japanese usually mix up L's and R's. They mm-hmm. have a sound that comes right in the middle. They don't have an L, they don't have an R, uh-huh. but um, they have da di ru re do. In their vocabulary, um, everything goes along those, the five vowels are a, i, u, e, o, and then ka, ki, ku, ke, ko, and then so, so on down with all the consonant sounds. And the one that we wouldn't have is the la di ru re do, which in English is like if you were to say the word patty, the mm-hmm. D D Y sound in right. like uh, the frog's patty the or D, something. D, yeah. 
Is is that, are you are you? I mean, you you speak Japanese. You've been living there for eight years. You said uh, I know that your um, your better half is Japanese as well, so you do get to practice as well. Is is um, are you fluent enough so that people would not know that you're not Japanese if you would be on the phone, for instance? That's very difficult. Um, I'm I'm fluent enough to to um, manage a business meeting to converse. But to fool someone to thinking I'm Japanese, I cannot. I'm not that good at the different politeness levels. Ah, okay. And, and that is the, those different levels of politeness are are cultural bound, I guess, right? Oh yeah, yes. And there's six, seven, eight different layers you need to learn. So tell us a little bit more about about these politeness levels. I mean, in English, you don't you don't. There's no polite form or impolite form or formal or informal way to address someone. Uh, in Dutch, there is. In German, there is. In Spanish, there is. But those are really only two levels. I mean, you would say to the president, "You," while you would say in Japan, "Usted." Uh, in Japan, in Spain, "Usted" instead of "tú." Uh, to to give an example, how do you differentiate the politeness levels in Japan then? So if you're in a business meeting in Japan, the first thing you do is your group lines up and their group lines up and you exchange business cards and you, you pay a lot of attention to the order of the lineup because it will be by seniority. Mm -hmm. And then when you, after you exchange the cards, you have to look at the card and look at what they call the katagaki, which is the person's level, um, the Like the uh, like in the army, you would wear on your shoulder right. your yeah. rank, yeah. and you figure out the person's rank, and then according to your rank and their rank, um, you know which politeness level um, to use. Mm -hmm. It's slightly off, um, but it's funny if you see Japanese overseas and they all live in the same apartment building, mm -hmm. the the floor they live on will indicate the level within the company. That's interesting. Is is um, hence management will always sit at the top then? Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, and and then, and if I if I can relate to um, uh, your partner as well, if 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 that's okay, if we can, if I, I can ask you that, are you at the most uh, at the lowest level of politeness when you're with your partner then? So it's interesting. So for politeness language, the first concept is. Um, Is this person my superior or my inferior? Mm -hmm. And then the other question is, are they familiar or not familiar? And then are they part of my circle or outside of my circle? It's three-dimensional almost. Yes, yeah. And then there are layers there um, on, on top of that. And so if they're inside of my circle, then it's very informal. For example, if... I meet Mr. Tanaka, he's outside of my circle, I would refer to him as Tanaka-san. Mm -hmm. And you put the honorific san at the end. But if they're inside my circle and I'm introducing him to someone else or I'm just talking to him, to someone inside the circle, I would never use the san. He would just be Tanaka. Mm -hmm. Or for my own name, I would you would never put the honorific on top of your own name because you're the ultimate inside of your own circle. Yeah. yeah. Um, so every single verb has an informal and a formal um, conjugation on it, just wow. basically. And so you need to know that, whether I'm speaking informally or formally. With my wife, it would be informal. Um, and we would speak as, um, as equals. Right. But <laughs> Japanese, you know, it's an ancient culture and it's, um, it's a funny society. So the word 
for wife, if I introduce my wife to somebody, mm-hmm. um, I would refer to her as kanai, which literally means the person that's inside the house. And if someone else from outside my circle were referring to my wife, they would call her okusang, um, which is the person from the back, from behind, from behind the backside of the house, Mm. from inside the house. And the word for husband, goshujin, um, the formal is, it's one way of saying um, the main person and the, the... Less formal way, the way my wife would call me would be danna-sang, which literally means my master. Yeah. So yeah. we we try to tend not to use the Japanese words for that. Okay, so indeed it wasn't indeed on my mind. So if you're if you're in the comfort of your own house place, then uh, it, it would be the lowest level of politeness. And but that changes if you sort of step out of the house. It could be a restaurant or it could be business or whatever. Then then those way of addressing and the levels of politeness change even amongst yourselves. Yes. So if I'm inside my house and I were speaking to my wife's father, I would have to use politeness language, even though we're inside the house. Right. Yeah. Um, outside with everybody, it would be polite. And then depending on their level, if they were outside the group and superior, then you have to use um, the very polite language. My goodness. How do you, how do you, how do you cope with that? I mean, nobody, there's, it's, it's hard to, because nobody really tells you this, do they? Uh, no, Japan is very difficult. They don't tell you anything. There are a lot of, a lot of rules. I, I was in a business meeting last week and, and I had a colleague from, uh, from England mm-hmm. and he had a cold. And so in the meeting, he blew his nose, oy, oy, oy. which is just the ultimate faux pas uh-huh. yeah. in Japan. But no one ever tells you this. Yeah. And so you ask yourself, well, what are you supposed to do in that situation? Um, and so after all those years of observing the Japanese, what they'll do is either excuse themselves and go to the bathroom and blow their nose, mm-hmm. or they'll sit there and sniffle nonstop for right. the entire 60-minute meeting. <laughs> okay. It's, if, if you're really upset with someone, then, um, and could you just blow your nose out of, out of, so to annoy the other person, or is that also not done? Uh, very disrespectful. Um, so the Japanese are, are literal thinkers. They hate the unexpected. Uh-huh. Sometimes, um, if I'm, it's very bad of me, but I'll walk around with one shoelace, shoelace untied uh-huh. and it will drive the Japanese around me crazy. <laughs> and so sometimes I'll do that to, to kind of get them back if, if they've been, uh, annoying me. An untied shoelace. My goodness! All right, I'm just trying to I'm trying to digest what you're saying here. It's um, I had I, I, like I normally do with my podcast. Any guest really is uh, I don't prepare much. There's a few questions that I write that I write down just because typically they they interest me. Uh, one of the questions I've written down is it's and through the like 20 plus years since I've been doing uh, my intercultural uh, intercultural management work. I've come to understand this is an average, right? That um, uh, out of Indian, Chinese, and Japanese, if you take these three cultures, Japanese are by far the most difficult culture to work with. Would you agree? Um, yeah, yeah. In in my framework, the Japanese are actually the opposite of Americans because the Japanese are they're literal literal thinkers. They see the world in literal terms. Mm-hmm. 
they reason in an intuitive manner, which is very different, and they believe in relative truth instead of absolute truth. So in every aspect, uh, they're different. Can you can you sort of elaborate on what relative truth means for Japanese and how that is for us really difficult to understand? Sure. So in the West, we believe in absolute truth. Um, we believe something is true or not. Um, in in Japan, it's very different. Everything is relative. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you can go into. I've been into. Um, um, temples, Buddhist temples in Japan, mm -hmm. and there will be a Shinto shrine within the temple. That would be like going into a Catholic church and they have a shrine in the corner for Celtic gods or Norse gods. Mm -hmm. It's it's totally unthinkable for believers in absolute truth that you could mix religion that way. Um, but for the Japanese where they don't, they relative truth, there are many paths to the mountaintop and they can all be true and they can all be wrong. Um, so it's often said of the Japanese, they're, they're born Shinto, mm -hmm. um, they'll have a Shinto ceremony at birth, they're Confucian in their day-to-day -day lives, they'll often, very often, have Christian weddings, mm -hmm. and they have a Buddhist ceremony when they die. Wow. And is it, is it I mean, you're the example of this, but just out of curiosity, is it possible to mix? Can a Japanese marry a Chinese? Or I know from a historical standpoint, that might be a bit difficult. Um, but an Indian, for instance, or is that is that frowned upon? Traditionally, it is because for almost 300 years, Japan separate cut themselves off from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And they really have an extremely homogenous society. So much so that the Japanese that were sent to colonize Brazil in World War II, 100% pure Japanese blood, when they went back to Japan, mm -hmm. uh, they were not accepted. And there were calls for these foreigners to go home. So, so that's the basis. However, um, Japan has opened up quite a bit and there are a large number of, um, of overseas and cross-cultural marriages there today. Mm -hmm. So, but that then that's that's a, that's okay at this moment. Yeah, particularly yeah. in the big cities. Okay, is there? You mentioned this, and this is on my mind as well. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Japan has been indeed. You you just mentioned 300 years. I thought it was even longer. Uh, been living in isolation and not trading with anyone, any other country except the Dutch. If I'm not mistaken, is there? Is there a reason why they did that, and why did the Dutch? Why were the Dutch the exception? Um, that's interesting. The Japanese have their own philosophy of life, their own way of life, and foreign technology and ideas were infringing upon that. For example, the gun um, took the power away from the samurai mm -hmm. because a, a gun in the hands of a coward could beat the bravest samurai with a sword. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of reasons, they just did not want the foreign interference. So they, they closed it off. There was one enclave the Dutch were allowed to visit uh -huh. um, for trade, but they weren't allowed to go from there into Japanese society. It was very isolated. Hmm. Okay. Um, why the Dutch? Yeah. I don't know. It's... Um, Probably they were the most respectful or they managed <laughs> the politics. I mean, with the, with the horrible directness of the Dutch, I mean, we are seen by pretty much every other culture as blunt and, and overly direct, although that's not our intention. Our intention is to give you an, an honest answer. 
right? So, but then again, I mean, it just comes across so so brutally honest that it's it's seen as rude. Um, but you wouldn't you wouldn't know why why it were the Dutch. Was it just good money, potentially as well? Probably. Um, the Dutch were certainly all around Asia at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, it's a it's a statistic that I that I tend to use in my in my workshops. It comes from Japan, Japanese statistics and statistic in terms of train delays. Um, and I link that to very strong uh, rituals as well. In terms, and when people think about rituals, Japanese rituals, they usually think about karaoke, which is one of them as well, of course. Um, but then I, I use the statistic. I think it's from 2012 or something, whereby the accumulated delay or delays of the fast uh, the the bullet train was over a whole year was no more than six seconds. What is what is this thing with punctuality that they have? Well, this is reflective of their literal thinking, um, in my mind. The, the Japanese see the world in literal terms. Uh, if you, uh, you know, I was a commuter there for many, many years, mm-hmm. and the trains are virtually always on time, mm-hmm. and the trains are scheduled to the minute um, as a user, but internally, they actually schedule these trains to the second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they, they have a very... Um, literal take on the world. And so the opposite is abstract thinking. They're very weak at abstract thinking. So areas like finance, the Japanese just aren't good at. Mm -hmm. But manufacturing, anything that has to do with the real world um, and and the observable world Mm -hmm. is, is what the Japanese are very strong at. Even um, even though they they can deal with relative truths as well, because that makes it foggy, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, I guess truth is an abstract subject. They they don't believe in universals. Um, they don't believe something is always and everywhere going to be the same. They have a phrase, uso uh, mohoben, which means even lying is a dialect of language. And when you speak Japanese, very quickly you learn that there's something called tatemai and something called honne. And tatemai is the surface truth, and that's the truth that you've, you must maintain. Mm-hmm. And then honne is the real truth that comes out one-on-one, um, or if everyone's been drinking a lot. Um, right. But you're not allowed, even if the honne came out, they say you vomited out the honne last night telling the truth to everybody when you were drunk. The next day in the office when you're sober, you're not allowed to say it anymore. Yeah, but it so, is it is a way to find out for at least for for a superior to find out how he's doing amongst his uh, his his colleagues, I guess. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's when you find out that or uh, in, in, through third parties in the smoking room or mm. playing golf. Or I, I remember one time my boss uh, saw me in a new in my new jacket. He said, "Oh, your new jacket looks very comfortable." Mm-hmm. And uh, the next, I said, "Thank you." The next day I came back to work wearing it and a, a different colleague came up and said, why are you still wearing that jacket? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the boss yesterday told you not to wear it. Uh-huh. And I said, ah, I didn't understand comfortable meant unprofessional. Right. Okay. So you find the truth out from the go-betweens. Ah, okay. And is this then really shameful that you did this, that he wore his jacket again? Oh, I took it off immediately. Yeah. Okay. Just a weird note um, about Japan. When you walk into someone's house or into their office in the winter, you can't be wearing your jacket. 
So you have to take your jacket off and fold it over your arm, no matter how cold it is, before you go into their office or into their house, because it would be considered rude to wear your coat into someone's house. Um, that's just a side note. But for me, yeah, it, would, it was shameful that I wore it again. So I, I uh, took it off immediately and never wore it again. <laughs> Any other of these? I mean, I'm laughing, which is which is is not, is not a judgment, uh, a, a, a form of judgment about Japanese culture. It's just it is so far from our reality. It seems like. Do you have any other of these examples? Oh, there are just tons. So many rules. You're not allowed to chew gum in front of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, you have to take your shoes off before you. Anytime you go into a house, there'll be a step up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and they call the genkam before you take that step up. I absolutely have to have your shoes off. Um, and then you're not, you can't just take them off willy nilly. You have to line them up very neatly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are rules on how to bow. Um, here's an odd one. Uh-huh. When you're speaking to someone in English, yeah, being quiet shows that you're doing a good job listening in Japan. It's the exact opposite because in their society, you're not allowed to make eye contact or you're not, it's discouraged, especially an inferior to a superior. Mm-hmm. So when two people are talking, they have something they call aizuchi, which is these noises that you make to indicate to the other person that since you can't use eye contact to indicate that you're listening, you have to use all of these noises and sounds to indicate that you're listening. <laughs> My goodness. And so indeed, the avoiding of, of eye, co- eye contact is um, is the norm if you're inferior to another person. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend who worked for a big trading company, and he said first day of training, they told him, uh, look at the knot of the tie of the superior when he's speaking to you. Mm, okay. All right. Well, that must be hard. I mean, and how, how do the Japanese deal then with, with us? I mean, non-Japanese, because we must, they must see us like, like, like incredibly uh, either weird or, or rude or impolite. Um, on the one hand, it's very difficult for them. They can never truly express themselves. On the other hand, um, it's easy because they just have a completely different set of rules. Let me give you another example. Hmm? Go ahead, please. Yeah. So in China, they say you never really get to know someone until you have a fight with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's Buddha, Bushangshu. Japan is the exact opposite. If you have one fight with somebody, mm-hmm. that's it. Your relationship is irrevocably damaged and over. Um, the harmony has been broken. Mm-hmm. So in Japan, you cannot have a fight. I've been 18 years with a Japanese wife. We've never had a fight. She's she's given me the silent treatment for three-day stretches. <laughs> <laughs> But we've never had a fight. And Doesn't that, um, doesn't that drive you up the wall then? There are sometimes I would prefer a fight. Yes, ah, the the Japanese silence is is uh, is deafening. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Can you say something about um, uh, this phenomenon called karoshi? Karoshi, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so when you hear about karoshi and you think, ah, oh, Japanese working themselves to death, that's what it means, of, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, overexertion, death, mm-hmm. and you would think that this would be blue-collar workers, someone that's in a factory working until they drop dead or or someone very active or physical, but it's not. It's actually people, it's white-collar, it's people at their desk. And Japan's extremely hierarchical, mm-hmm. um, not just with the language. So 
if I'm in a Japanese office, I can't leave if a superior to me is still in the office. Hmm. So the top superior has to leave and then the next and then the next and it goes down until it reaches that person. And so that can be very late. The, you can end up being stuck in Japanese offices for a long, long time. And then there's a lot of overtime. And so some of these people working at the traditional companies end up at their desks for so long um, with such fatigue that they literally drop dead at their desk. How, and how, they're how not, is that possible? I mean, if you're sitting at a desk, you, I mean, the worst thing that could happen is that you fall asleep, no? Yeah, it's... Japan, it's very difficult as a foreigner to realize how extreme, how severe Japanese society is. Mm -hmm. um, when it's difficult to express, so the train rides in are are, are very huge, extremely crowded trains. They they tire you out. You're, the Japanese tend to be very underslept, and these people. Um, the karoshi, the ones that die at their desk, just work extremely long hours, um, much longer than you could imagine, with very little sleep, not enough food, um, a high level of stress, and uh, it's that it's the that extreme pressure on them. Okay, and then and then so that it's more stress related than than physical um, physical exhaustion, or well, maybe that's not really put well. It's 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 the exhaustion really that eventually kills them then. Yeah, yeah, and it's white collar. That's the um, the part that surprised me about it so much. Okay. Um, the, yeah. Go ahead. Well, the the dedication to the company is so extreme. Let me let me tell you a story here. When I when I first lived in Japan, this is a long time ago. I was twenty three, twenty four. I was an English teacher. Mm -hmm. I drove a, a Mamasan bicycle, or I rode I rode a Mamasan bicycle. Um, I didn't have much money. But I made friends with um, with the neighbors and their son, and he had a friend, and we used to go out drinking. And his friend was maybe 26, mm -hmm. and I admired him so much because he worked for a proper company. He had a real salary. He bought a car. Um, he dressed well. And, and I just thought, wow, he's doing so well. I can't wait until I get older mm -hmm. and get a proper job. And uh, one day... Um, the neighbor came over to tell me that that boy had killed himself oh. and I just couldn't believe it because he was doing so well. But apparently what happened was, um, he got fired from his job and someone he was competing with got the promotion and he was out and the shame of it was so bad. Um, and Japan is, a, is an honor culture mm -hmm. and it's also a shame culture mm -hmm. The only way he could restore his honor in his mind, and in Japan it's a legitimate way, was to kill himself. And that clears your name. Um, as an American, I just, I just couldn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, failure, the Japanese fear failure so much. It's why they're not very good entrepreneurs and not good risk takers because the price of failure is so big. Mm -hmm. When I left home, I you know I told my parents I'm going to Japan. I had uh, I had five hundred dollars, no credit card. Um, I didn't know where I was going to stay the first night. Mm -hmm. I I thought I could figure it out. My dad shook my hand and said, "Good luck." 
<laughs> write me a postcard, son. <laughs> yeah, and if I failed, I, I wouldn't think twice about it. I was, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Exactly. It was an experience. I would have learned something. You know, I would have gone home, had a good laugh about it. So, but I in mean, Japan, yeah. But in Japan, the price of failure is, is, is steep. It's an extremely, extremely severe society. So, I mean, you were 23 um, uh, when that happened, that incident, when this person committed suicide. And then you said, I couldn't understand this. And I mean, now, many years later, can you understand it now? Or is it something simply you've accepted? Like, okay, this is how you guys are. So... There was like a funeral at the family's house that I went to afterwards. And they were sad, but there was no despair. They had truly accepted what had happened. Mm -hmm. And so looking back at it today, I can understand how the family reacted. Mm -hmm. I can understand why he did what he did. But I still in my heart, just can't accept that that's the right solution or right. that that's ever yeah. a good solution. Yeah. You've written a book about this, uh, this, this, all this good stuff. It's called Culture Hacks. And um, the subtitle, Deciphering Differences in American, Chinese, and Japanese Thinking. How do you go about explaining all this in, to, say, the average American or Western? Or, you know, this is almost unexplainable. <laughs> and it depends very hard. So with my colleagues... Um, I just try to be the go-between, explain the rules to them. A lot of it is translating for them what's happened or, mm -hmm. or um, helping them communicate better. It's, um, it, it, so I developed this framework on, on how we view the world differently and how we think differently and how we reason in a step-by-step -step linear manner, but they're intuitive thinkers and explaining the difference there and mm -hmm. relative truth and absolute truth. That, that's how I explain it. Okay. And then through stories. And yeah, stories. Stories are always good indeed. So if you, if you would have to, well, get, I'm looking at the time as well, and I could go on for hours because it's this, it's inter interesting. It's like you're peeling an onion, which, which ne never seems to end. Uh, you're never at the core in terms of, at least for, for, for my, in terms of understanding from a Western standpoint, how Japanese culture works because then you explain this and then you peel another layer and there's again something which I don't understand. Um, so can you give us the like three tips or three things that uh, that the Western person or the American or whoever um, uh, needs to do to to communicate better or to be more functional within Japanese society? Well, the first step would be um, I often see Westerners talk over Japanese. The Japanese are intuitive thinkers. They're, they're very deliberate. Mm -hmm. Very, con they consider. Um, so, <clears throat> if you're speaking with a Japanese, and they're subtly nodding their head up and down, or they're looking left and right, it means they're thinking. And the best thing to do is to give them time and space uh, to develop their ideas and then to articulate them. They're far more comfortable with silence than we are. And so, when communicating with communicating with the Japanese, it's important. Um, to 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 give them that space to express themselves. Okay. Um, that, yeah. Go ahead. No. Do you have a question? No. 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 I'm, 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 I. I would reckon this would be point number one or things. Yeah. That. I mean, be be comfortable with silence at least. Yeah, and allow them time to express themselves because they are not going to. Um, 
interrupt or interject the way we would. And they're going to take a lot longer to develop their thoughts. Yeah. What's another thing that, that we could do in order to be more accepted? Well, the other thing is to remember that the Japanese are intuitive thinkers, which means it goes by feeling. Um, they don't believe in logic the way we do. They think logic's very impersonal. It can wreck the harmony of relationships. Um, they learn through experience and over time. Just similar to China, um, in Japan and China, you develop the relationship first and then you do business second, whereas in the West, you generally do business first and the relationship second. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Matsuo Basho had a great quote. He said, um, you don't want to follow in the footsteps um, of the master or do not, do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise. Mm -hmm. seek what they sought. And this is the Japanese belief that you can't. Um, D.T. Suzuki said there's no transference of knowledge from master to disciple. It's the master just shows the disciple the way to finding knowledge that's already within themselves. It's just a completely different way of understanding. And it comes down to feeling that's been developed over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. Like, a Japanese sushi chef will spend 10 years in the kitchen before they're allowed to cut their first fish because they need to learn intu intuitively um, how to do it. Uh, if you join the tennis club in the, in the school team, yeah. the first year you never pick up a racket. You just run around picking up balls because your job is to learn intuitively. <laughs> and so it's important to remember that with the Japanese, that ultimately um, their logic comes down to a feeling, to an intuitive feeling. But it's not um, short term intuitive like we would think, oh, I had an intuition or a feeling. These are they develop these intuitions over over decades. Mm. Wow. OK, um, what's the third point? I mean, you, you probably have given like, like 10 or 20 points already. Do you have anything <laughs> anything else that would be that would be? good for us to know you know it's um this is what always struck me when i started learning japanese the word for wrong in japanese mm -hmm. is it's different all right so you rarely ever say oh that is wrong or it is wrong or you're wrong instead you would say it is different and so to just to remember that japan is this very hierarchical um, very exclusive society and it's um, conformity, the, the, the urge to conform um, is very strong. Ruth Benedict gave an example of there were like a thousand peasant revolts during the feudal era and apparently about half the time the Lord ruled in favor of the peasants. But even though they were in the right, the leader of the peasants still had to get boiled in oil or their head cut off or crucified mm. um, because the price, even though they were right, they broke the order. Mm. They disrupted the harmony of the hierarchy, and so they had to be punished um, by death. And so when you're dealing with Japanese, realize that the level of the person is extremely important to them. And you instead of thinking of them as an individual the way we are um, individuals, mm -hmm. to them what matters is what group do they belong to? Mm -hmm. What's their role, responsibility within the group? What does the group expect of them? Mm 
Um, that's the best way to understand the Japanese. It's no easy feat, I, um, I think. It's um, indeed, and, and what's what you're describing indeed makes it, I guess, logic to some extent that for, for Westerns, Japan is a very difficult country country culture to deal with, to do, to do business with, because it's so remote, it's so different from our culture. Um, Richard, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Um, on uh, Twitter, it's Culture Hacks One with the C and the H capitalized, mm-hmm. or uh, email is ozakiyutaka98 at gmail.com. That's that's you have to explain this to me as was last time when you were on the show as well you gave me that email address that is not an easy email address to remember <laughs> Ozaki Yutaka was a um, a pop star in uh, really during the the bubble the peak period of Japan mm-hmm. um very charismatic great great singer very popular um if if you're Looking to get into Japanese culture, Ozaki Yutaka is one singer that's really interesting um, to to listen to his music. Okay, so it's not Richard Conrad at gmail.com. It is the other email, which I don't even dare to repeat, but I'll um, I'll put it in the show notes. So if you do want to get in touch with Richard, then uh, look up the show notes. We're recording episode 131. All right, Richard, it's been, again, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, again, I could have talked for, for at least a, another hour on this because it's, it's really f- fascinating, typically with the examples you give as well. Um, well, uh, thanks again, and uh, I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. Excellent. Well, thanks, Richard. Again, it's been enlightening. Um, really, I really enjoyed this interview. I always wanted to know more about Japanese culture, and um, actually now I do, from, from your perspective at least. Well, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, then please do so. And uh, while you're at it, you can find it, by the way, in iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify, the three biggest. Uh, If you're in iTunes, then please leave a a review. That would be great as well. And the music you hear is from Ben Sound. My name is Chris Smith. This was the Culture Matters Podcast. And I'll be back in two weeks' time. Take care. Bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.